the 50th episode of X-Rated. Oh my god, I'm Ryan Whedon. I'm Matt Fisher. And we are so glad to have made it this far. It's a big, nice big round number. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's half of 100. It, 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 it's 225s. Exactly. <laughs> it's actually 51s. Oh, wow. Or 510s, if you want or to think about that. Or 150. There's lots of ways to think about this, guys. <laughs> yeah, sadly, 50 is not a prime number, so you can divide it and multiply it in several ways. So, uh, can't simplify your life that way, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but yeah, big five. Oh. Yeah. Uh, before we get started, I kind of want to take a moment and uh, plug our junk. <laughs> yeah, if, if, you know, just here at the front of the episode, if you could just go ahead and... Give us a star rating on iTunes. Maybe write us up a, a short little review. Yeah. Like, if you just put the word good and five stars, I'm fine with that. Sure. Um, so, yeah, you can go do that. We won't be doing anything interesting. No, you could even pause the podcast. I'll probably put some nice music going on for a little while. I'm, I'm just going to be sitting here reading this adult novel. I'm uh, up to the moderate on my daily Sudoku app, so I'll, I'll be fine. So, uh, yeah, why don't you just uh, do that real quick? We're back. Thanks. Thank, Thank you so much. We really appreciate we, it. We really do appreciate those reviews and star ratings on iTunes because that's the best way to get the word out there about the podcast. Yeah. And uh, it's good to get that at the front of the episode because it's possible you don't listen to the end. And I know that that's I'm not I'm not shaming you for that because I know lots of people don't listen to the end of podcasts. We just thought we'd get that at the front. Thank you. Thank you. So the big five oh. <laughs> we did something different. We like to do something different on our double feature episodes. When Ryan and I first started this podcast, it was sort of on the premise that we weren't going to do the movies that have already been talked about endlessly before and that we just felt everyone already knew about or that we just wouldn't be able to contribute to. Yeah, there's nothing new to say. But some rules are meant to be broken. And so we decided to do AFI Roulette. Where we went... And took a look at the AFI Top 100 American Film Institute. So it's all American movies. or Revised in 2007. That's the one we looked at. And we got a random number generator off the internet. You know, where you get everything these days. And And spun the wheel. Yeah. We allowed ourselves two vetoes. So we did veto some movies. But um, that that third spin, after both our vetoes were used up, we were stuck with. Yeah. It meant there was no going back. We ended up with Tootsie and Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Two well-crafted, interestingly written movies. Tootsie, of course, uh, is used in all the screenwriting textbooks. While it's formulaic, it excels at that formula. Whereas Pulp Fiction, with its non-literary narrative and its vignette structure, is unconventional but is equally effective. Look at you smooshing these together. (laughs) 
I was trying to portmanteau it, so I'm thinking Pulpsy or Toots Fiction. Your choice. Um, well, Toots Fiction. Toots Fiction. Okay. Because it makes it sound like my fart's lying. <laughs> Pulpsy sounds like a gangster movie. Pulpsy sounds like the orange juice I don't drink. <laughs> Farmers in Florida grow the best oranges for Pulpsy. America's orange juice. Well, before we dive into the movies, yeah, yeah, I kind of want to take a, a moment to to reflect on this tumultuous year. Sure, sure. Uh, when we started the podcast, it was before the election, twenty sixteen. Shortly before, oh we, god, we recorded the very first episode on Halloween Day. In 2016. That's right. First episode, Beau Travail. Mm-hmm. Directed by Claire Denise. Mm-hmm. I think the S is silent. Claire Denny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure. And then episode two, was that already in a... In a... Not quite, because we recorded it the Saturday before the election. Okay. And okay. so we were just high spirits... Ready, like confident, Still naive. so confident that we would be cruising on into a Star Trek future. <sighs> and then humanity let us down. <laughs> it's been a, a year of tumult, mm-hmm. but we've survived it. We're better for, uh, or better <laughs> spiritually, maybe. I was gonna say, I feel like I've aged five years in the last year. But yeah, and we've come a long way. Uh, I mean, including the double features, this is. You know, more than 50 movies. Yeah. I'll let you do the math as to how many movies that is. <laughs> I gotta say, the further along we get in this podcast, the less likely I feel like we're ever going to get a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like that frees us up. I mean, we have we have creative freedom. We're not in the pocket of Big Field Roast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fake meats are bringing the podcast creativity down (laughs) their demands on no meat movies we just couldn't sign the contract i'm sorry what if we want to review eating raul yeah i mean what are we gonna do then it's possible not probable but (laughs) i like to keep my options open i mean once we get to like episode 900 or so we've done a lot of movies is there a favorite one you've had in the last 50 uh i think the one that that i still get kind of giddy thinking about would have to be bound okay really anytime like we talk to someone about the podcast i always want to direct them to the gershonathon mm. like our our episode uh, 30 right. double feature mm-hmm. where we did bound and house of uh versace oh yeah versace I love Versace. Watching Bound with a critical eye really just enriched it for me. Oh, okay. Not just a, a critical eye, but like watching it through like the LGBT lens as well. Yeah. And it like came out in '96, and how like how unwoke a time '96 was, and how forward-thinking that movie was, and how it's not like a thing. Like they didn't make it like, oh, we're being so transgressive. Like right. they just portray these, you know, two lesbians as two people. Yeah. 
And yeah, I, I, I look back on that episode and I just, I get excited and it makes me just want to watch it right then and there. We were fresh off the celluloid closet too. Yeah. Episode. So I think we were vo- both, I was anyway, I'm not going to speak for you, but like definitely viewing queer cinema with a different eye or just like a more critical and informed eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I agree with you. That was a nice, that was a nice one. Uh, what about you? Is there a favorite? <sighs> I mean, it it turned out to be a good episode, but at the time it was a nightmare. And uh, I'm going to go with Tipping the Velvet. Okay, yeah. Just because I had such plans for having a guest on and questions. I thought it was going to be kind of a serious conversation, serious and funny. And it just... Oh, it deteriorated so quickly. It didn't work the way I wanted it to exactly, but it turned out to be a lot of fun. It's still my favorite episode to go back and listen to if I'm going to, because I still think it's... uh... I literally laughed until I cried at that episode, even though I was like part of it and knew what was going to happen. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. Um, And uh, I'm glad we did it. What is one of the biggest surprises? Like, what's a movie that you are shocked at how much you liked or surprised that you liked at all. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with Bad Moon, actually. <laughs> because sure. I don't care about werewolves. <laughs> and, like, the first five minutes of it kind of set me up for, okay, this looks like it's going to be really bad. Okay. But I, I really liked Bad Moon. Okay. I was really surprised at how much, how good a movie that was. It was really entertaining. Okay. And, uh, I mean, a brisk 88 minutes, how sure. can you not be? But, um, it was, it was really great. Yeah. The, the one that I think I was kind of shocked at how much I liked and you're going to adamantly disagree with me, uh, American Anthem. Oh, come on. <laughs> I was kind of charmed by it. Oh boy. Okay. Like it's bad, but like, Hey, it's totally watchable. It, well, mostly cause you got the hot bodies in it, but it's also just so overly dramatically produced there's like smoke and fog in these scenes with (laughs) that lighting designer was gunning for some award (laughs) (laughs) and it just i don't know all it it's it's strengths outweighed its flaws for me in the end this has been a nice little trip down memory lane it has been fun I wonder what's in store for the back end of our first 100. Oh, the things that I have in store. (laughs) Okay, should we dive in? Oh my god, here we go. How are we doing? Which one are we doing first? I feel like doing Tootsie first. Yeah. Uh, so it's Toots it, Fiction. If if you wanna, if you have an argument to do the reverse order, that's fine. No. I just want to say real fast, we got this off the AFI list, blah blah blah, and I had to figure out where it came from. And they just their website is really nebulous about how they came up with this list. Isn't it just like an anonymous group of voters or something? It says a jury of fifteen hundred film artists, critics, and historians. Did you want you wanted like a list of names? Kind that, of. You're just like <laughs> you're gonna like mail them at home. It's like, are you responsible for putting Tootsie on this list? <laughs> YN. So Tootsie, directed by Sidney Pollack, starring Dustin Hoffman, Terry Gar. Uh, 
Why is it so hard to remember her name? God damn it. She's the one that won the Academy Award, too. Yeah. I can't ever remember her name, either. Fucking A. <laughs> Jessica Lange. Jessica Lange. God. Bill Murray. Bill Murray. Gina Davis's first role. Yes. Uh, she's barely clothed. <laughs> for most of That's why she was hired. That, and also because she's tall. She's, like, made Dustin Hoffman seem really small. And then, uh... Dabney Coleman. Coleman. Mm-hmm. I think that covers all the. And Sidney cele- Pollock is in the movie as well as directing it. That's true. He plays Michael's agent. Yes. Michael is played by Dustin Hoffman. This is loosely based on the real life Dustin Hoffman, who, while a brilliant actor, is difficult to work with. Yeah, you know. Uphill. He had done a whole bunch of movies throughout like the late '60s and '70s. Where a his his performance was acclaimed, but then like it was seen to like elevate the movies too. You know his first starring role, which you know you're gonna poo poo, but was uh, the Graduate. Mm-hmm. And th- the put a f- pin in that, listener. One big thing about the Graduate is that that normally that's a role that would have gone to like a Robert Redford or a Warren Beatty, but instead they cast like Joe Boxadonuts, like <laughs> newcomer. Yeah, and. At the time, it was sort of, like, radical because, well, A, Dustin Hoffman's Jewish, and, like, suddenly, like, American film critics were, like, showing their anti-Semitism. Rex Reed, in his, like, printed review of The Graduate was... I don't like where this is going. Where did Mike Nichols find this miserable little cretin? And it's, like, it's easy to sort of forget that, like, that was sort of a big to-do back in the day. (laughs) God... We have uh, so far to go. <laughs> but yeah, so it's like when that came out, there, there was like a lot of anti-Semitic things said about Dustin Hoffman that mm. he just wasn't a leading man. He was a character actor, which is which was, especially back in the day was code for ugly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically. So, you know, the fact that he could make it while still like having critics weirdly deride his looks does say something about his performances. I mean, he's you know, you got Marathon Man, you got All the President's Men you know, with the graduate in there. Like there's a whole just series of movies, uh, Lenny, the Lenny Bruce movie that he did mm-hmm. that were just, you know, very acclaimed and that he was very good in them. Yeah. You know? He was a, a method actor, but he was difficult. I'm not going to shit on him as an actor. I think he's great. I think he's great in this movie and I'm not going to shit too much on this movie. If we're doing a, a deadbeat film society grading <laughs> where you love it or you hate it, I'm going with hate it. Great. Me too. <laughs> It's got a lot of problems. It's got a lot of problems. Oddly enough, I found that it being transphobic not one of the problems. No, me neither. My biggest issue was just the the main conceit and how on earth you could pull this off. So I I like how the movie, it's like he's having trouble getting acting. He's yelling at Sidney Pollack, his, his agent, you know, get me more roles. I'll do anything. He's like, no one will work with you. You can't do it. The next scene is like... <laughs> In, like, a crowded Manhattan sidewalk, and, like, the crowd parts to reveal Dorothy Michaels, as he opposed goes, to Michael Dorsey. He goes, I'll show you. <laughs> and then it's, like, oh, naturally, that's what would be the next this step. This is his plan A. <laughs> There's no transition. It's not like Mrs. Doubtfire, where, like, he goes to, like, his gay brother's house, and they yeah. doll him up. Like, this is, like, I'll show you in his agent's office, dressed as a dude, cut to him <laughs> coming out of... The crowd, like that mirage, 
in Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> no one will hire you. Oh, yeah? It's unbelievable. It's like, you if you don't make that leap with the movie, you're done. I guess, like, the poster kind of, like, already revealed what the movie was going to be. Like, you knew that Dustin Hoffman was going to be in a dress in this movie. You only have, like, a hundred minutes to make this movie, or, like, to, to, to show a movie. So you got to get Dustin Hoffman in a dress as quick as humanly yeah. possible. <laughs> and... It kept taking me out of the movie, too. That was my problem on this viewing. I've watched it before, and, like, it didn't really bug me that much. But, like, this time around, I just kept finding weird moments where it's like, oh, so he's shopping for clothes in character? Or, like, that whole time when they go up into, you know, the Poconos or whatever for for Thanksgiving, it's like... God, he had to like be in character a hundred percent of the time for that. Like he wasn't it sounds exhausting. So like moments like that would take me out of the movie. I would just be like, that's what I'm thinking about now rather than like what this movie is actually about. Well, I mean, I think that speaks to the testament of the screenwriting is like when a character gets what they want, but it turns out to be a trap. It's like, yeah, now he's a big actor or actress. Uh, you know, he's got a role on a prominent soap opera you know the the movie's equivalent of general hospital Mm -hmm. he gets this part but it's like the price that he has to pay is like now he can't not be that part yeah and i guess i'm just not i'm not big on movies or stories where it's like the main conceit is a farce or a lie that you just like that the main character is like trying to uphold but like i just putting a guy in a dress has got to be the oldest joke in the book like you see like greek plays that like have gender role reversal i mean you even see you know in more modern stuff like women dressed as men and it's funny too like it's not specifically to this but like God, I can't think of a time in, like, British humor where putting a guy in a dress wasn't, like, a guaranteed laugh for a British audience. Yeah. Or if it's tipping the velvet, it's a, you know, guaranteed... Uh... <laughs> guaranteed... <laughs> <laughs> I guess now that I'm thinking about it, it is a little odd that there's two movies on this list that have, like, the stars dressing as men dressing as women because Some Like It Hot is also on the AFI 100. Oh, Yeah. So I mean that's a good example too. Like you'd put Jack Lemon in a dress who's gotta be the ugliest woman. Yeah. Uh which makes me wonder what does this movie say that that one doesn't already? It's a good question. I don't know. I'm just this is something I'm thinking about right now. I don't know. I don't have an answer. I would like to say that this has got to be record time for your hair being this disheveled this early in a podcast. <laughs> movie... You're just like already like, I've had enough of Bootsy. <laughs> And it's not, I, like, okay, it's not a bad movie by any means. Like, I think it's breezy. It's enjoyable if you just kind of sit back and turn off your brain a little bit. But, it, but like I said, it has problems. So, I guess, yeah. let's, just, let's just dig in to the problems. I mean, first of all, if I were ever in this situation, I wouldn't know where to begin on shopping for women's clothing. So, like, he just immediately knows how to put on makeup. I mean, as an actor, I'll give him that. But yeah. it's just like... Man, he's got, like, endless income to buy all these clothes. Women's clothes are expensive. Yeah, don't they mention that at some point? She is laundry, you know what it costs? And the makeup? I don't know how a woman could keep herself attractive and not starve these days. And he talks about, like, the women fighting over a handbag, da 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 that, that stereotypical thing from the 80s. Those women were like animals. I saw this one beautiful handbag that was on sale, but I was too frightened to fight for it. I mean, they're vicious. 
They kill their own. I don't know. He's complaining about not having work, but then he's able to afford this whole different lifestyle or, you know, personality. Uh, can we talk about the apartment that he had? It's huge. For two, like, Bill Murray was a playwright. Mm-hmm. By the way, if there is one shining moment in this, it's fucking Bill Murray. He's, I, I he love is, him as the supporting role in oh, this. He is perfect in this movie. I don't want a full house at the Winter Garden Theater. I want 90 people who just came out of the worst rainstorm in the city's history. These are people who are alive on the planet until they dry off. I wish I had a theater that was only open when it rained. His name wasn't in the opening credits, I don't think. No, it's not. He actually like downplayed it because he didn't... Uh... I looked this up. He didn't want his fans, because at the time he was known for doing a bunch of like, you know, screwball comedies. He didn't want them to know that he was doing this kind of serious thing. So he had it like played down. He didn't want to be in the trailer and da 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 da. So. I mean, yeah, because he didn't want to be considered like a stripes or a meatballs or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess his part was written in sort of uh, after the original script was. was right, done yeah, because Michael by... was supposed to be alone. Yeah, and uh, his part and Terry Garr's part were written by Elaine May, oh, like okay. famed uh, comedian. Uh, she used to have like, I guess it was a radio show with Mike Nichols, like the director. Like, oh, they okay. had like a comedy radio hour. Oh, wow! And they were like a famed comedy duo before he went on to directing. She directed some stuff too, but mostly like went into writing after that. Cool. And yeah, she wrote in the Bill Murray part and the Terry Garr part. And Both great parts. I'm, but I'm like, those are my two favorite <laughs> people in the movie. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I'm like, mm, it's interesting in this movie about like a guy becoming a woman that... <laughs> the, the most two- interesting characters will be written by a woman? Yeah. Yeah. Funny that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. There's a scene where Bill Murray like strips down. He's like trying to put on Terry Gar's dress like while she's in the shower. You mean Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, yeah. And she comes out of the shower quicker than Dustin Hoffman planned on it. Uh-huh. And he's just in his skivvies. I was like, he was just a tight little package back in the day. Like, he's just a skinny little nothing. Oddly enough, when he puts on a dress, he still looks like a linebacker. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I will say, I do think uh, he makes a convincing woman. Like, mm. not a pretty one. No. Not so much so that he can appear on the fucking cover of Cosmo and fool the entire nation. But well, he always convincing. had those high collars to like hide his Adam's Come apple. On, I mean, those it was moments like those where I was just like, "Jeez!" I mean, he's photographed with fucking Andy Warhol, and you don't think Andy Warhol called him out on it? Come on. I mean that that was really Andy Warhol. It was. <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's just like, it's hard to believe the conceit of this when it's going out on national television. Like, there's just, like, the amount of eyes on him wouldn't allow for this to happen. You'd think that some celebrity gossip reporter would have, like, tried to look into Dorothy Michaels' past, too. And found that, like, oh, this person seems to only have existed uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And I don't know how it works in the Screen Actors Guild, but it's like, do you not have to felt like, a W4 or something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's some, there's just so many logistics on that that didn't come through. I I know like E-Verify didn't exist back then, (laughs) but I I feel like there's some sort of rigor. Like you're making an income, you got to give social security or something. Even, even at the very end when like the dude who plays the main doctor on the show 
who I know best as the dad on Punky Brewster. I don't know the actor's name. They call him the tongue. Gina Davis calls him oh. the tongue. When he shows up, when he shows up at Michael's apartment, like he's fall, he's been following Dorothy around, and he goes up into their apartment. Wouldn't he be like? There isn't even a line of like, "You live here." Like maybe he's so love struck with her that he doesn't notice, or he's drunk or something. But it just seems like that does not seem like a place that Dorothy Michaels would live. No, it's it's. It's sort of a bachelor pad. Yeah. Like, there's nothing ornate about it. It but doesn't it match her personal decor. It just wasn't commented on, and it was it bugged me. Mm, I can see that, yeah. I also... I just couldn't believe that there's this many men that deeply attracted to Dorothy Michaels. <laughs> you know, you have Terry Garr and Jessica Lange, who are beauties. Yeah. And they look and dress and act like women. And then you have Dorothy Michaels, who's like wearing dresses that hide all sign that she's a woman (laughs) and people are throwing themselves on her it's uh i mean yeah maybe that's just a comment on how uh you know people are attracted to power i i do like we've definitely learned that in the last year (laughs) so i mean there was a lot in here that seemed really really relevant and specifically when the doctor on Southern Hospital. And like that's that sort of whisper network that I feel like a lot of women in Hollywood had to survive on for years. Even in like shows like 30 Rock or like Seth MacFarlane made a joke at like the Oscars that year. Congratulations, you five ladies no longer have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) We, the people that aren't in Hollywood and dealing with Hollywood on a reg on the regs like these celebrities or whatever, we just see that as like, oh, they're ribbing Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, you know what I mean. But and, then know, it's like powerful producer. You know, you just kind of yeah, like that's the way you. But it's like no, yeah. they were being. That's like not a joke. So it is relevant in that way for yeah, sure. And definitely. there's like there's moments too, like the director that played by Dabney Coleman uh, never calls Dorothy by her name and. Finally, at one point, Michael gets fed up. Michael, as Dorothy, gets fed up and says, Ron, my name is Dorothy. It's not Tootsie or Toots or Sweetie or Honey or Dow. Oh, Christ. No, just Dorothy. Now, Alan's always Alan, Tom is always Tom, and John's always John. I have a name, too. It's Dorothy, capital D-O-R-O-T-H-Y. Dorothy. Excuse me, doctor. Like, part of it's, like, great that it's, like, it, it, took a man to like walk in a woman's shoes to like realize like the level of sexism that goes on. Yeah. But I think it just needed to go that like little step further where it was, where it would have been like Dorothy Michaels telling Jessica Lang, like don't put up with that. And like, she then gets the confidence to like yell it at Dabney Coleman yeah, or something maybe. like that. Like, I don't know. Uh, Cause then it's like the showing of it, which she does, Dorothy does is what gives them the confidence. So it's like, I don't know, it walks that line of like, should she have told her to do it or should she have just done it and then shown her that that's the way you should do yeah, it? Yeah, because that's my problem. It, I feel like it, it it gives the impression that Dorothy Michaels is influencing the behavior of, you know, the women around her. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like all the actual heroic acts are done by Dorothy Michaels. Like none of the women actually right, yeah. like take the agency to like do it themselves then. Yeah. And that's like where the problem kind of lies for me is that with the exception maybe of Julie, uh, Jessica Lang's character who, when she breaks up with Dabney Coleman, cause she's kind of dating him, but we don't see it. We just yeah. see a montage of Dustin Hoffman taking care of a baby. Uh, I mean, and there, there is a good, 
portion too when they go up to I think it's Jessica Lange's father's like yeah house oh, in the country. So exhausting for me. But there's a a nice little scene where Dorothy Michaels is holding Jessica Lange's baby, which there is like an idea that they don't really explore is like Jessica Lange is like a working single mom. Uh-huh. It's like there's a lot to explore there and they're just kind of like, "Oh yeah, this is the love interest. She just happens to have a kid. Let's not mention it too much." But it's like there's a scene where Dorothy Michaels is like holding the the baby and you kind of see like him allowing himself to be a little bit more like sweet and genuine with the baby and a little bit more nurturing. And I thought that that was like another shade that like they hinted at, but could have gone in further that this allowed him like this guy's allowed him to be more nurturing than if he was just Michael Dorsey. Another nice thing is that it made him realize things about himself as a man, like where he falls short, because there is that part where Dabney Coleman comes to pick up, Jessica Lang's character when they're going to go do the breakup and she's taking care of him they like have a moment while Jessica Lang's getting ready and he's like you know you don't like me but I like that that you don't like me I don't want everybody to like me da 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 and he lays this line on her where he says something like look Dorothy I, I never promised Julie I'd be exclusive I never said I wouldn't see other women it's just that I, I know she doesn't want me to see other women so I lied to her to keep from hurting her but Dustin Hoffman's character says that exact same yeah. thing about Terry Garr's character and it earlier makes him in the movie. Realize his own bullshit. Yeah, that's very convenient. So he's sort of like, at when he is literally like looking through the eyes of a woman, kind mm-hmm. of thing. He sees like this bullshit that men can pull. Mm-hmm. It takes Dorothy for him to see that. You know, it takes him like literally walking in her shoes to see that. Well, even at the end when Jessica says like, "I miss Dorothy." You don't have to. She's right here. It is sort of a nice little landing because it says that she's now a part of me. That, yeah. like, it's not going to go away now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I shit on this movie a lot, but there are nice little pieces to it. There's nuggets to it, yeah. And, I, I mean, the whole the whole idea of it is still pretty good. And it, and it gets to good moments, mm-hmm. but... I don't know. This movie has no less than three montages. That's just bad filmmaking. It's lazy. I mean, Sidney Pollack, like, he's directed some, like, fine movies, but nothing that I'm super jazzed about. Mm-hmm. You know, he did Jeremiah Johnson. He did, like, what was it, Out of Africa, I think he did. Oh, God. <laughs> it was so long. I know him best at the guy who overdosed with the hooker in Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, okay. <laughs> and actually, he's... That's another thing. The acting in this movie is really good. Well, Dustin Hoffman, I guess, begged Sidney Pollack to be the agent. Yeah, it was supposed to be Dabney Coleman. Actually, oh, it was who's going to be the director then? Uh, I don't know if they'd gotten that far. Oh, uh, well, I'm glad that they ended up making that casting choice because that works much, much better. Yeah. I mean, Dabney I, Coleman, who was also the uh, sexist, bigoted, whatever, boss in 9 to 5. Dora Lee. Would you grab your pad and bring your pretty face in here, please? Right. Is basically playing the same role here. He also plays a shithead in The Muppets Take Manhattan, so he's pretty good at that. <laughs> Get back! Back of the chicken kitchen. I forget, you always one-up me on those Muppets. <laughs>
And he's great in this. He actually doesn't play that ass holy. He just plays kind of oblivious, man. I mean, he's he's the casual sexist in this. Yeah. You know, as is pointed out in the movie. Yeah. Well, when Dorothy Michaels goes to audition, he kind of looks her up and he's like, I'm sure that you're a very, very good actress. It's just that you're a little bit too soft and genteel. You're not threatening enough. Not threatening enough? How's this? You take your hands off me, or I'm going to meet your balls right through the roof of your mouth. Is that enough of a threat? To start... Yes, I think I know what y'all really want. You want some gross caricature of a woman to prove some idiotic point, like like power makes women masculine or masculine women are ugly. Well, shame on the woman that lets you do that, on any woman that lets you do that. And that means you, dear. Miss Marshall, shame on you, you macho shithead. I like that whole scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like it culminates thematically well, not necessarily realistically. Mm. Like... Ugh. Well, yeah, the amount of times that she goes off script and they just sort of are like... Yeah, they're just okay with it. Yeah, like, I mean, there's one time when he... I think it's the first time when he when the tongue leans in for a kiss and she smacks him with the files and says, you can't do this to me. Um, and then, like, they're talking about it afterwards and he's like, I don't know, I just had this instinct and, like, it was a good instinct and then... Dabney Coleman, Ron's character is like, wait a minute, I'll handle the instincts here. The way the movie foreshadows, like from a screenwriting perspective, which is largely like a, a big part of what this movie celebrated for, uh, it does that very well. Like A, the way that it, it, it builds to the live scene, because they, they, they mention it a couple times about how doing it live is this big event and that the tongue can't handle it. You might consider that an Almodovar's gazpacho. <laughs> You you might, <laughs> uh, and I like the way that they sort of foreshadow to uh, Terry Gar's rage. Like, a they're rehearsing her, like when Dustin yeah. Hoffman was just being her uh, acting coach. Yeah, they're rehearsing the scene where she has to get angry, and he's not. She's not getting angry enough, and you know they're going back and. Then uh, they sleep together, and then he's dancing around it, and like being a typical dude Finally about when it. He admits it, uh, and you know, trying not to hurt her feelings, and he's like just afraid that like she's gonna shatter you know, like, glass if she finds out, and blah, blah, blah. And then when she finally does find out, like, yeah, she gets super pissed at him. Ah! What are you saying to me? But also pulls herself together yeah. just fine. I think I should tell you to shove your play, but I won't, because I never allow personal despair to interfere with my professional commitments. I am a professional actress. So, are these real chocolate-covered cherries? I think so. See you at rehearsal. It does a good job of, like, building the character in one direction, but then you have that contrast uh, the sort of like just juxtaposition or the paradox of like her defying expectations yeah. and uh, and you know in doing that she is suddenly this more well-rounded character than she had been building up to be and this is something another thing that I wish this movie would have leaned in more to is the meta aspects of this where it's like you get an actress playing an actress doing an audition where she's acting you mm -hmm. know and then later on she's like being real and you get all the meta stuff with like dustin hoffman being on a show as a woman da, 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 da. but like they just don't lean into that enough like there just wasn't i feel like they could have used that a little more um they just i don't know in what way exactly but it's like they have it all set up to do that but they never actually exploited or 
or talk about it in that way, which was a little frustrating for me on this view. Yeah, it it just it, a lot of it just seems like it's a movie of sort of missed opportunities or like half fulfilled opportunities. Yeah, like they started down different paths, but didn't quite go all the way. I mean, it's 1982. I can't expect a movie like this to be like super progressive or anything like that. Because I mean, a as we mentioned earlier, not transphobic, which is sort of what we thought. Like I figured that there'd be some character who like realized dorothy michaels had genitalia and it would have been a shock or something yeah the worst we get is like when her dad finds out and they're at the bar and he's just like the only reason you're still living is because i never kissed you that's about it though yeah it seems like bill murray is super supportive oh (laughs) i mean in his own way he's the best but even when there's like the the idea that dorothy michaels is a lesbian yeah that comes out no one's like homophobic about it Mm mm-hmm like they're all sort of like understanding of it at that point, uh, but yeah, Bill Murray with his you know you slut. He's just perfect in this movie. He, I love yeah. that he like he he seems like he just plays it really well because it's a, it's a fine line of like I think what you're doing is weird. I'm not gonna judge you. I'm gonna let yeah. you do it, and I'm gonna help you. But you know, I should be able to answer the phone. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like he's just he just seems really grounded, and it's really nice in a movie that feels like a farce you know it's really nice to have that grounding i i'm somebody who feels like they're of this world (laughs) i'm a firm believer that there are a lot of actors out there that really should just take a supporting actor role from time to time think about like robert de niro in jackie brown which i know we've mentioned before on the podcast who is just a perfect supporting character or edward g robinson in double indemnity like he hadn't done a supporting role in like 15 years or something but he liked the script and he thought it was a good movie and he didn't want to pass it up so he let himself go to that level but he's great in that movie yeah and i don't know i feel you know you get these big actors and they spend all this time in like the spotlight but like you give them a little supporting role and they kind of make the movie yeah there's that scene where he's packed where dustin hoffman's packing up to go on that trip and bill murray i don't know if you know this is eating a plate of lemons (laughs) Just lemons? Yeah, he's got a plate of sliced lemons and he's kind of choking them down. So I line... definitely did not see just the lemons. Yeah, his line delivery is kind of weird because because he's like he's literally eating lemons. <laughs> How long can you keep lying to Sandy like this? And I read that he did that on purpose because he's like, well, there's just no way I'm going to upstage uh, Dustin Hoffman in a dress. So he's like, what can I do? I know, I'll do this scene uh, <laughs> while eating lemons. <laughs> okay. But it's like... It's subtle, like you didn't notice it, right? No. So it's like, but it's there if you look for it, and uh, it still keeps it wacky, but like, I don't know. It worked for me. I know I just got done saying like, he's a grounded character, and who the fuck would be eating a plate of lemons? But I don't know. I thought it was funny. Uh, Also watching it this time made me realize, surprise, surprise, this is mentioned a lot in 30 Rock, and I (laughs) hadn't really realized it that much, Uh, but there's even a scene where like Liz Lemon's trying to disguise herself as like a young hot woman uh-huh. uh, in order to scare off her dad from his gentleman's intermission. So he's at a bar and he doesn't have his glasses on so he can't see anything. Oh, I do remember this. And she goes up to the bar and she puts on a southern accent and says her name's Dorothy Michaels. <laughs> Real fast, I want to go back to when you're talking about when they're up in New, you know, upstate New York and uh, they hand the baby over to, uh, <laughs> to Dorothy. Mm-hmm. What were they looking at? Oh, I don't know. They just kind of left her. <laughs> yeah, the, I was like, assuming they were looking at wheat. It's the begin. It's the beginning of a montage. So it's like they kind of walk on screen, 
and uh it's not brian dennehy but whoever her dad plays her dad in this yeah um, he comes on he's like Oh, look at that, honey. And then she goes, oh, and you can tell that they're looking at nothing. <laughs> and then she just hands the baby and then they both like walk off. Like it looks so cheesy. It really, really took me out. Also, he proposes to her. What the fuck? Like, I know that they're old fashioned, but like, come on, there's at least a courting period. Like buy a lady a drink yeah, first or he's something. He's actually kind of a creeper too. Even in his all old fashioned stuff. Like when they, there's a scene during the Thanksgiving stuff where Dorothy and Julie are sitting on the swing chair and then Julie gets up to take care of the baby or take a phone call or something like that. And then he comes and sits, but he sits on the same side of the swing chair as her and puts his arm around her. Yeah. It's like that. You can tell that Dorothy's uncomfortable with it, but he still just like leans into it. And it's like, that's not consensual. (laughs) Also Dorothy Michael, like, while while she might not be a looker, is considerably younger looking than that man. Yeah, like just looking, I'm like, that's like a good solid twenty years. <laughs> yeah. that old dude, seen, like junior. Yeah, what what are we what are we talking like a uh, like an April November? Yeah, uh, romance. Basically. <laughs> like, yeah, come on, buddy. No, November's too late. Maybe like November <laughs> August, I guess, but. Sadly, I kind of feel like this was the last great Dustin Hoffman role. Can you think of a great performance from him? You don't think Rain Man was great? Oh, I guess that was shortly after this. I haven't seen Rain Man in a long time, though. It's definitely, like, lopsided into his pre-Tootsie. Yeah, pre-Tootsie, (laughs) post-Tootsie. That's how you can divide Dustin Hoffman's career. It's also the name of my autobiography. (laughs) Pre-Tootsie, post-Tootsie. But, I mean, we should talk about just the name of the movie itself, Tootsie. Right. That's not his name in the movie. Right. It's the name, like, it, 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 it's... Of the song Dabney. that gets sung? Oh, my God! That song is so bad. Oh, my well, God. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to the music. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I just, Yeah, I just wanted to say that it, it's what Ron, Dabney Coleman, calls Dustin Hoffman that finally kind of, like, shakes him out of it. And he's like, no. My name is Dorothy Michaels. Yeah. It's not Toots. It's not Tootsie. And they call the movie Tootsie, which I find to be weird. (laughs) Yeah. What are they trying to say with that? I don't know. And like the cover art, like the poster art is like Tootsie in front of an American flag. (laughs) Yeah. That's so like, I don't, I don't know what that was supposed to be. Anyway, the fucking music. (laughs) God damn. I mean, this dates to like, that really awful time in American music where, like, soft rock is what, like, passed for mainstream entertainment. It's like, Arthur, you know, you know, the best that you can do is fall in love. Sailing takes me away from where I'm going. I can't. I mean, I cannot with the soundtrack on this movie. It's just the fucking worst. It is so... And it's like the Dave Grusin score is bad. Yeah! And then you have, I think it's Stephen Bishop who does, like, the Tootsie song. (laughs) Go! Tootsie, go! Oh, my God. It's so bad. Like, it instantly dates the movie. Yeah, and it was another thing that kind of took me out of this movie. Like, I'm a firm believer that, like, in any music movement, there's still, like, as bad as it is, like, there's still good stuff in there. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll find... 
prog rock that I'll defend even. Sure. Uh, you know, and when we get to like sort of AM radio hits mm. of this kind, like I'll defend the Carpenters, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. But this is like that specific brand, like Christopher Cross and stuff like that. That's so saccharine and so smooth and so specific to like a time in the early eighties that just has no merit to it. My parents used to listen to the soft rock station in the car when we were driving around. And I remember physically feeling ill and squirming in the car because they would have it on the soft rock station. When I was a child, just feeling like this music makes me feel awful and just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal. I remember crying one time asking them, please change the station. Please, please, please. Mom, dad, put on yellow. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's still, and it still makes me feel weird. It just, I, I, there's some stuff I've grown to appreciate. Like mm-hmm. Carpenters is a good example, mm-hmm. but some stuff you just don't grow to love. And this no. is a good example. This yeah. telling me it might be you song is just, let's let history, please forget it. Stephen Bishop's music <laughs> did not age like wine in that it got better it turned to vinegar oh <laughs> which brings us to our next movie after this break fast before we jump into Pulp Fiction, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Lynn Thigpen, who's in Tootsie. She's working behind the scenes on the TV show, but she is the voice of the DJ in The Warriors. All right, now, for all you bumpers out there in the big city. Oh, really? Yeah, and she's also the, um, on Car- Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? She's, yes. the, she's the chief. All right, gumshoes. So yes, I forgot any, about that. If there's any fellow gumshoes out there. I recognized her from Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, but I didn't realize that she was the DJ in Warriors. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, Lynn Thigpen. Crazy. Also in Tootsie. Anyway, I'm, uh, that, that's all. I'm ready to talk about this other movie that we've so luckily landed on. Yes. So, I'm a firm believer that Pulp Fiction, while wildly derivative of movies like Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag and Two Days in the Valley, or Boondock Saints, (laughs) is still the Citizen Kane of movies. (laughs) I mean, if there's one movie that is a prerequisite to this podcast, it's this one. I don't want to think that like you have to have seen a movie before you can listen to this podcast, but we've referenced this movie no less than seven times i think have you really kept track well at least five but i rounded up just because i'm sure there's a few times that we've said it that i don't remember i mean i watched this movie so recently that when i put my blu-ray in it auto remembered where i ejected the dvd (laughs) (laughs) and went right back to the closing credits i have watched this in this calendar year like Sometime within the last couple months, I've watched this movie. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to put this number at least, for me, at least close to a dozen. Yeah, total? 
Yeah. I don't remember. That might be high, but still. I don't remember the first time I ever watched it all the way through because it was so long that I fell asleep the first time that I watched it. Oh, wow. Were you a babe? <laughs> I, I'm still a babe. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was pretty, I was inappropriately young. Oh, wow. My, like, I look back at the movies that my parents let me watch, and I am shocked. <laughs> I actually was probably too young to see this the first time I saw it too, but I, I would was... still be too young to watch this movie. <laughs> I was the prime age, actually, I think. So going into this, I was really intimidated to talk about this movie. There's been so much ink spilled. So many people yeah. have talked about it. Like, what else can we add to it? So I decided that my analysis this time would be to just kind of focus on the first time I saw it. Okay. And then this most recent time. Okay. And so that's really all I'm going to talk about. And all I'm going to talk about is my own personal experience, because that's really the only thing I can bring to the table. <laughs> that sounds like a good plan. Everything I've read about it since, it's just like, well, you're saying it better than I ever could. But... So I just want to say real fast, my first experience with it, it was the summer that my parents had gone on a trip and left me and my brother behind. And there was a new movie theater that had opened. This was 1995. And for their grand opening, they were doing second run movies for a quarter. Oh, my God. And so I, I went with my cool neighbor and her older sister, who was over 18, and we went and saw this movie and Interview with a Vampire as a double feature. Sure. And this one was first. It's a long double feature. Uh, yeah. I don't really remember Interview with the Vampire <laughs> in the theater. I remember kind of getting, checking out about halfway through. But um, before it even started, we're sitting there and there was a child in the audience, <sighs> like pretty young. And there was a woman in front of us who, who turned to that the parents of the child and said, you might not want your kid to see this movie. There's a gay rape scene. <laughs> And as a 15-year-old, I remember having so many feelings <laughs> at that moment. Like, oh, what are we getting into? I, I'm kind of titillated a little bit. Yeah. Because I was still in the closet and, like, figuring out all that junk. But um, not, anyway, not we'll come to, back to that. Well, well no, nah, that's where I want to go. <laughs> not to jump ahead too much. What the fuck is that gimp for? Like, even through my years of sexual depravity and, like, not not necessarily all firsthand, but, like, hearing shit of, like, my friends going to bathhouses in Germany, which are crazy, I don't know what this gimp does. He's there to warn them if the cops come. What? <laughs> How would he do that? His mouth is zippered shut. Yeah, that's actually something I'm realizing now. I don't and know. And he's like lassoed in to the ceiling. I feel like it's a, a super sub scenario because he's like locked in a box. Yeah. But then he's going to like take advantage of, of Bruce Willis in some way, even though like nothing's protruding. I don't know. <laughs> I, I've In my years of watching this, I've never been able to figure out what the gimp is or does i mean no one does (laughs) (laughs) but that's part of the mystery of it so the one thing the aspect that i feel doesn't get talked about enough is that quentin tarantino does a great job of world building in this yeah one of the strengths of, of either say like a mystery movie like a chinatown or a mulholland drive or like great science fiction, Star Wars, Star Trek, is that it makes you feel that you're only seeing a slice of this world. Sure. And that your imagination kind of builds the world around it. Mm -hmm. And I feel that 
Pulp Fiction actually does that for what's otherwise just a drama. Not knowing what the gimp does or is or what this like seedy underbelly of gay rapist sex with a cop and a pawn shop owner that just kind of lets our imaginations run with it yeah like i can't put a definition to to what you know zed is or does or what his scene is but it it still sparks my imagination and it just it gives a sense that you're just seeing a small part of a big world and I think that goes a long way with movies when your imagination can kind of run with it or, or yeah. fill in the blanks for you. It's also interesting because I remember the first time I saw it, not really knowing what time period it took place in, feeling kind of confused yeah. on that level. And in and I think that kind of works in its to its credit. Like mm-hmm. you don't you don't really know because the music is dated. Yeah. Um. Like they go to Jackrabbit Slims, which seems like it's out of the fifties. I remember being really confused as to what the time. Well, the cars in it all seem kind of old. Yeah. It Except seems like it's supposed to be taking place in the like present. 1970s. Oh, I thought it. To me, it felt like it was supposed to be taking place in the late nineteen seventies. Just looking at like the fashion, the decor, and like listening to the music. It's always like funk and soul from that era for the most part sure 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 uh you know dusty springfield uh uma thurman plays i mean it's urge overkill which is you know early 90s band uh but like she's playing it on a reel to reel yeah yeah so when i watched it at least like the first couple times i always thought that it took place in the late 1970s but they use cell phones right so maybe that's the thing that like my. And you know Eric Stoltz is eating fucking some sort of weird off-brand fruity pebbles that like doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, that's true. So, but that's what I mean. It's all so, sort of like fake, you know? Like yeah. it's not supposed to make you think of anything specific. I don't think it's supposed to be in a time period. Yeah. It's just supposed to be like I guess now at that point and then everything else is just past, you know? Some kind of weird past reference yeah but i think that's sort of the power of the movie is that it's sort of out of time like it's not a time and place it's its own time and place absolutely yeah yeah yeah. the biggest strength especially watching this time around is god that dialogue is amazing (laughs) it is so good because it's like they're talking about nothing while something else is going on or they're talking around something they're never saying exactly what they mean. You know, like it's, the, for example, um, when the, the Royale with cheese scene, yeah. it, the first scene, second scene, I guess, in the movie. And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? I mean, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it the Royale with cheese. they're on their way to go kill people but like that's not what they're talking about they're talking about this shit you know i mean the royale which she seems is really them talking about nothing but when they get on the topic of like the foot massage yeah that whole thing is sort of painting a picture of the type of person that marcellus wallace is like they never say that like he's a crime boss like yeah or that they say that he's you know a gangster doing gangster shit or anything like that like they're just talking about like 
an interaction that he had that resulted in this, and it paints him as a potentially volatile and very violent individual, which then plays into the other vignettes. Yeah, and I love that they get into the real intricacies of what that means of like what the throwing someone out a window means for mm-hmm. for possibly giving someone a foot massage i also like how they go through like the ins and outs of you know the intimacy of a foot massage yeah look foot massages don't mean shit have you ever given a foot massage <laughs> don't be telling me about foot massages i'm the foot fucking master you're giving a lot of them shit yeah got my technique down and everything i don't be tickling or nothing would you give a guy a foot massage? And it's like, they go through these like yeah. counterpoints, but it's really great because it really got, dives in to what it is. Yeah. It really gets to the heart of it. It's like the opposite side of a coin of like a cop duo, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, they're not, they just have conversations about junk all the time too. But this time it's, you know, hitmen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's like, this is what they get into when they're when they're on their way to well, work. Well, yeah, because like movies like Lethal Weapon, when they came out, people liked the banter between Riggs and Murtaugh. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't really, yeah, a buddy gangster flick necessarily before this. I mean, there's been plenty since this, but uh, it was, you know, it's sort of nice to see this flip side of the coin. Like, oh, yeah, these people are just normal assholes like the rest of us. Yeah. I just yeah, and I love the details of it. You know, it's like finally when the, when the argument's finally over and they all go to like go kill the guy. Like John Travolta's line is like, "I ain't saying it's right, but you saying a foot massage don't mean nothing. I'm saying it does. And look, I've given a million ladies a million foot massages, and they all meant something. We act like they don't, but they do. I mean, that's what's so fucking cool about them. There's a sensuous thing going on where where you know you don't talk about it, but you know it. She knows it. Fucking Marcellus knew it." And Antoine should have fucking better known better. I like it because he's not arguing for either side, really. He's, he's sort of like, I, I'm saying both, you know? Like, I'm saying throwing someone off, of, off that for giving your wife a foot massage is excessive. I'm also saying he shouldn't have given her a foot massage in the he first He should have place. fucking known better. Yeah. I also like when he does take Mia out, Uma Thurman, on the date, and he brings it up at the restaurant when she asked for him to, like, come up with a conversation thing. And he's like, oh, I heard something, you know, about something. And she's like, You heard Marsalis through Tony Rocky Hard at a four story window for giving me a foot massage? Mm-hmm. Can you believe that? <laughs> well, I mean, at the time I was told it sounded reasonable. Marsalis throwing Tony out of a four story window for massaging my feet seemed reasonable. I love how that conflict or that question is just deflated. Yeah. She says, When you little scamps get together, you're worse than a sewing circle. The biggest criticism I think that's wielded against this movie is that it's not about anything. That it's just Boo, like I full throatedly disagree with that I, critique. I do too. But like even that aside, when the dialogue and plot are as engaging as this movie is, who fucking cares? You know? I mean, really one one thing that I've I've been looking for in movies recently, like since starting this podcast, is like when does nothing feel like something? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I watched The Social Network a couple weeks ago. Okay. I'm like, this is a lot of just, like, white people sitting around bitching. <laughs> but it feels like something's happening. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like things are moving. It feels like things are really happening. And that's the same thing with this. Like, most of this movie is just people sitting around talking. Yeah. But it feels like stuff's happening. And how he does that, I don't, like, how Tarantino does that, I don't know. I mean, I guess that 
there's a lot of logic in his dialogue. It's it's very conversational. It's very natural, and it's very like forward momentum. Mm-hmm. That like they're not just. It's not like some boring '60s art house French film where they're <laughs> you know talking about the meaning of whatever. Like they're talking about like I know about cheeseburgers. <laughs> I could have this conversation. Yeah. That's another thing is that this movie, I didn't realize it until watching it this time, but this movie introduced me to a lot of things that I never had thought of before. Uh, for example, mayonnaise on fries. I never knew about that till I saw this movie. TV pilots. That oh. was, that was the, fir- the first time I thought of that was this one. Uncomfortable silences. Mm, that whole scene mm-hmm. that they talk about. I've never thought about that until I saw this movie. Which a lot of that diner scene is, <laughs> I joked about, this being derivative of movies that copied <laughs> this earlier, but uh, the diner scene is actually very specifically derivative of a Godard film called Band Apart. Oh yeah, Band yeah, of yeah. Outsiders. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because there's then a they did dance. Yeah, th- there's a scene in a diner where they're talking about awkward silences, and then the sound cuts out, and Godard does it where he just stops the sound from being on the film entirely. Right. But they're talking about awkward silences before it leads up to that, and then yeah, they get up and dance in that scene for God only knows what reason. But... <laughs> it feels way less natural in the Godard film. Oh, definitely, definitely. Than it does in this, even uh, though it's kind of like a little ridiculous that she would do that, but at the same time, it's like. She defends it by saying, I do believe Marsalis, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. Now I want to dance. I want to win. I want that trophy. Question for you, as a dancer. Yes. Do you think they really deserve that trophy? Yes. <laughs> yes. Really? I mean, I didn't see any of the other competition. So, but based on what I saw, yeah. It's just her doing her thing. Come on, that's so good. By I mean, the way, last I've, night, I gotta say, last night I sang that song at karaoke at work just because the I was Chuck like. Chuck Berry song? Yes, yeah. It's A, it's super easy. Yeah, there's not even guitar in it. Yeah, it's great. And I would say once it started, mm, a good 70 to 80% of the bar patrons got up and started twisting. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's how like influential this movie is. So you don't think they can dance. I just don't think it's trophy winning good. What do you think? What if we had gotten like a couple other people dancing and they're just like falling on the stage, just like, woo? And they just I feel like if twist. you and I went up there, we could win that trophy. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Can I be Uma Thurman? Fine, I'll be John. T- I could do either one. Flexible. I just like what Uma Thurman's wearing better than what John Travolta's wearing. Definitely. Like, if I had Uma Thurman's figure, that's basically what I would wear all the time. What an iconic look. Oh, yeah. Those, like, hard bangs and the black hair with that just... white shirt with yeah, those crazy just... collar. Yeah. It's nuts. It, it's simple, but it's so eye-popping. Mm-hmm. I guess while, while we're talking about Mia Wallace real fast, I love that our introduction to her, we don't see her face until they pull up to Jackrabbit Slims. Well, we see a sort of... Uh, her lips, basically, when she's talking to the which microphone. Which is like an homage to Warriors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Lynn Thigpen. <laughs> exactly. So that's the bridge between these two movies. Good detective work is a team effort. But when she walks in to the room where John Travolta's hanging out, we just see her feet. Yeah. Which is like what we've been talking about before. Yeah. It's it's so stupid and obvious, but it's like, I don't think, I bet, I bet like 80% of directors, if they had given gotten a script like that, wouldn't do something like that. No. You know what I mean? Like, it's just something that you have to, 
that he they, thought about. They would have done like a sweeping camera shot that like showed her as she like went around the corner. You know, one of those. This is the star of this story. Yeah, shots. she but, comes out like I'm ready. Yeah, <laughs> arms arms stretched out. Like I don't know, but like it's just it's so cool. Yeah, it's this movie has an easy cool vibe to it mm-hmm. the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And Quentin Tarantino's got a thing for feet. Sure. Yeah, her feet are dirty and big. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's not a pleasant shot. I'm just saying it's cool because that's how we're introduced to her. Yeah. No, it's just. Yeah, it's. It's really interesting because then we're kind of like looking at her through that whole first scene. We're like trying to get a good look at her. Yeah. Maybe this like says something bad about me. I love her face when she like pulls up from doing a blow. I said, God damn. I also really like later in the second second act vignette, whatever you want to call it, when um, we're coming into Butch's place and uh, she says, And then thank you for dinner. This time around, I was thinking about it. It was like, maybe that's her sort of performing for Marcellus a little bit. Because mm. she's probably been acting weird since that incident. In some way or another. Yeah, yeah. And so like that's sort of her line to cover it up. She's like, oh, this is why I've been acting weird. Marsalis is like the subtext of that line. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I know it seems like such a throwaway line otherwise. But this time around, I was thinking like, oh, so there's actually some meaning to that there. Yeah, and that's one of those like little details. It just kind of adds a little color. Kind of shows that she's com- like a, a companion, like wife type. That she shows up to these events mm-hmm. with her husband. It helps with the timeline too. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And yeah, it's just it's a throwaway line, but it's also one that's also just it's a linchpin that like shows you where this is taking place in this non-linear storyline. Yeah, that sort of anchors you in a little bit. Yeah. Like, Shows you, you know, this is where we are now. This is happening after that dinner. And, yeah, it's one simple line that, like, lets the audience know where everything is. Just uh, banging right in. So, to go back to the diner real quick. Go for it. There's the discussion about the $5 milkshake. Okay. I'd be hard-pressed to find a milkshake for I was $5 gonna say, now. I was like, that sounds cheap. <laughs> so, I looked it up. Inflation calculator. $5 in 94 when the movie was ostensibly made okay works out to be eight dollars 44 cents in today's money that is kind of a lot of money for a milkshake i looked up some places in the area that sort of specialize in milkshakes such as a lunchbox laboratory like their oh, big thing is milkshakes right yeah uh 857 what? for a large milkshake wow which would be more than a five dollar <laughs> milkshake in 1994 wow so that means that yes Currently in Seattle, where we were recording this from, the fifth most expensive city in the United States has more expensive milkshakes than, I don't know, Inglewood, L.A., wherever this was supposed to take place, 1994. Wow. Yeah. And that's without bourbon or shit. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, you beat me to it. God damn, it's a pretty fucking good milkshake. Told you. This might be a personal question. Okay. You don't have to answer it if you don't want. Okay. As you are the sole editor of this podcast, you can even edit it out if you so please. Great. Do you know anyone who casually does heroin? I don't. I don't personally know anyone who does heroin casually, which is sort of how they portray John Travolta in this movie, that yeah. it's a casual, 
like the way that like I vape or tincture is how he treats heroin. Yeah, I kind of don't see. Oh my god, you have an iPhone. Yeah, I just got it last week. I'm sorry. Uh... <laughs> I'm not gonna keep. Please that. keep that in. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I just don't see heroin being a casual drug. I'm with you. I, yeah. I, it's maybe that's, you know, a character thing that he's so in control of himself that he can be. Okay. Uh, but, uh, cause he drives on heroin just fine. And like, I mean, the movie almost looks like he's shooting up while driving. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I the- guess maybe this movie does glamorize drug use a little bit, but so, uh, real quick to hop on your theme of like the first time we watched the movie or sure. experienced it. First time I watched it was with my mom and my stepdad. <laughs> uh, and my stepdad had a big needle phobia. Oh no! And now we watched it at home. Uh-huh. Like, but he got up and left the room during that scene. I, I mean, it is just a big close-up of a needle going into someone's arms. Oh, oh! I thought you were talking about later when Mia gets uh, the needle. Oh, yeah. He didn't care for that either. But when Vincent Vega is shooting yeah, up. Yeah, and the blood goes into it and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, he had to leave the room for that scene. Can we talk for a minute about the, like, Mia overdose moment? Of course. First of all, the cut from her falling on the floor to her, oh. like, just nasty. Yeah. I remember never having seen something like that before. They, they don't really explain it. They don't say nowhere like previously in the movie does someone say like you shouldn't snort too much heroin if you're not used to it. Like, yeah. So watching this is I, I think I was like 10 when I saw this. I was like, I have no idea what's happening. Yeah. I didn't know the difference between heroin and cocaine when I was 15. <laughs> yeah. But um, I just knew it was bad and that she was overdosing. But it was just like that cut to her look like looking fine and then looking messed up was <laughs> uh-huh. A big deal. I remember just, like, I can still feel it. And it still affects me watching it now. It's just like, oh, she looks so bad. I mean, do they even say the words heroin? Like, when he's at Eric Stoltz's, the the drug dealer. Redhead. I don't really have a problem with it. I'm just saying. He's like, Coke is fucking dead as dead. Heroin. It's coming back in a big fucking way. But I don't think they ever like specifically say that Mia is snorting coke. It's just sort of inferred. Like I think you already have I think to have the... a working vocabulary of drug use. Yeah, a little bit. In order to get that. It still works without because, you know, as a 15-year-old, I was still excited to see her. Oh, get... I, f- I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> I got the gist of it when I saw it. Yeah. This time around, the thing that I noticed the most was when they bring Mia in and while they're waiting to give her the shot, the stoned girl, Trudy, who's just hanging out on the couch. Oh, yeah. My eyes were on her the whole time. She, oh, yeah. A plus. She's just kind of Background acting. <laughs> oh, my God. She's holding the bong in the same position the whole time. Like, she never... Like, it looks... When they bust through the door, she's just about to take a hit, or she has just taken a hit, but then she pulls away, and she never... She doesn't move her hand from the uh, lighter part of the bong, either. She's just sort of like looking at everything going on and then eventually just before they stab she stands up off the couch to get a better view of yeah it all. yeah 
man, Trudy is my hero of this movie this time around. I was like, God, you are hilarious. Yeah, I remember like right before Uma Thurman gets the needle in the chest, there's like that little like ensemble blocking shot where you get yeah. like, John Travolta, then Eric Stoltz, and then is it Rosanna Arquette? Yeah. Uh, and then yet whoever plays Trudy, like <laughs> who just kind of like creeps in and yeah. like peers around the corner at the very last oh, second. Oh, it's so good. We're, we're like a third through this movie. <laughs> I guess this time around, I want to say the second act the bruce willis part um butch was like the least interesting part to me you know watching it this time around i kind of felt the same way like this is where my attention kind of waned i mean it's not that it's bad i it just feels like the less interesting story suddenly i don't know why exactly yeah i can't place it i've previously very much enjoyed it Mm -hmm. but this time around i don't know maybe it's because i've watched it so recently you know, within the last couple months that it just, it didn't hold my attention. But uh, really, I think my favorite part was the building of uh, Yolanda. Mm. No, wait, or is Yolanda Honey Bunny? Yolanda's Honey Bunny. Oh. You're talking about Florentine or whatever? Mm. Yeah, what's... Bruce Willis's uh, girlfriend? Yeah, what is... It begins with an F. Florence, Mm. Florentine, Florentia. Florentia. Mm. Not a name. <laughs> Fabian. Fabian. Yeah. That yeah. that first scene in the hotel room. Yeah. I like the way that they build her up to be so sweet and innocent. Yeah. Like, they, they really do a good job. Like, she's not... They don't infantilize her necessarily. Words. Yes. Will you give me moral pleasure? Like, she's still a sexual adult. Yeah. But they make her so sweet and innocent. Yeah. And I really buy it. Like, when she gets scared, it's hard to be angry at her when Bruce Willis loses it. Yeah. And it's like you understand why he loses it because we have that wonderful Chris Walken scene. <laughs> Which, by the way, there's, like, condensation on the inside of that watch. And it gets me every time. That's from being inside somebody's body. I like that Chris Walken scene because too often I feel that directors or screenwriters will use Chris Walken mostly for like ironic purposes. Like he's got his phrasing, his his you know very distinct cadence. Yeah, and I feel like they just lean into that in sort of an ironic, sticky way. Mm-hmm. And very few movies seem to like be able to like balance it between his seriousness which he can do like he's an a plus serious actor sure and also like mine him for comedic purposes he does both of them so well and i feel that his skills are sort of underutilized a lot of the time he gets put into the you know up his ass category (laughs) for like an entire role yeah when he can be like an a plus dramatic actor i always think of the made for television version of this movie during that scene because he doesn't say up his ass he says he held this uncomfortable piece of metal in his fist <laughs> uh anyway bruce willis yeah bruce willis anyway he's super hot in this movie we get to see oh his my d God. this is the first movie that introduced me to the idea that we could see d in a movie that wasn't pornographic bruce willis typically does not like get me hard but there's something about him in this movie. Yeah. You know, it's funny when when he's in the, the cab, in Esmeralda's cab, 
Do you not like that scene? No, no. I'm I'm just like thinking of how sexy he how is. How he's in that like movie. sweaty. Yeah. <laughs> and wiping himself dry. And she's like, she's a murderino, by the way. I don't know if you know that term, but it's like a my favorite murder term. She's because she's like, you are the first person I've ever met who has killed somebody. So, what does it feel like to kill a man? She asks him, like, what does your name mean? He's like, you know, American honey. Your names don't mean shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but his name does mean something. <laughs> And it means what he is. Yeah. He is Butch. Fuck. Like, his name is actual, actually literal to what he is in real life. Yeah. And it's like, it's sexy when he comes back and uh, he's like, let me take a shower with Florentine or whatever her name is. <laughs> and she's like, no, I like it when you're smelly. Yeah. It's just like, you kind of feel that too. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, he's really. I can buy that. Yeah. Ugh. And then they have, and then they end up having sex, and you're just ah, he, I don't know. <laughs> oh no, it, it worked for me. <sighs> they get hot in here just talking about this as me. I know that he was a sex symbol before this movie, but like I watched this movie, I'm like, oh no, he is just built. Yeah, like he's, he's banging in this. He's movie. just carved from like stone. <laughs> Whew. Yeah. Highlight of Death. this vignette. Death. I also want to say, I thought this time around, props to the props department for buying all that leather gear. Mm. <laughs> like, either somebody already had it or they like had a casting call that's like someone with a bunch of bondage gear. But like, none of that is out of place today. I mean, like, somebody had to go to a leather store and yeah. buy all that junk. Yeah. Or either that or somebody just had it. But either way, it's like... Good yeah, and when you think about it, full body leather jumpsuits really haven't changed that much in twenty years. <laughs> I, I mean, I could go to fetish night at CC's with that apparel, and no one would be like, mm, "It's a little last season." <laughs> I will say, so this is weird. Um, there's the final scene when you know when he's saying the whole medieval speech, "Get medieval on your ass" speech. Marcellus is wearing a button up shirt with like the leather harness over it oh yeah and i realized that's a really big fashion trend right now Hmm. and i haven't ever seen it previous to the current climate and i've never seen it in a movie or on a on a runway you know since pulp fiction came out in 94 Mm -hmm. so it's like is this a fashion trend setting (laughs) movie Maybe. I mean, it was past? sort of a music trend-setting movie. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, not just did it, like, kind of define what independent cinema was going to be for 10 years, but the music in it, too. Uh, I mean, you were talking about everyone doing the twist oh, during that God. Chuck Berry song. Uh, I mean, it definitely put Dusty Springfield back on the map with Son of a Preacher Man. I mean, Cypress Hill then sampled it, like, a year or two later. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody had that soundtrack. In the oh, 90s, yeah. you know, it was like everybody had those CD books yeah. of things. I all of my friends had that soundtrack. You'd flip to it and you see Uma Thurman, Pulp Fiction. It was like well, everybody. Urge Overkill owes like every ounce of money that they've ever gotten to this movie because it's not like they've ever written a song worth listening to on their own. Yeah. The way that the songs were used in this movie propelled or rejuvenated like these music careers too. Yeah, because there's no original score. It's all music. Yeah. Um, and it's a nice blend of diagenic music and non-diagenic music. It's nice because he kind of plays with it, too. Because mm-hmm. it's like sometimes it starts off as soundtrack and then turns into something that's playing on a radio mm-hmm. or vice versa. 
Um, but it's just, it's cool. It's, yeah. it's, it's the first time I've ever seen that. Also my first introduction to uh, leather gear and gimps. Another first for me. I don't remember which came first, but they were roughly around the same time. But I think I was introduced to the idea of a ball gag before this, because I think I saw Nine Inch Nails closer before I saw Pulp Fiction. I mean, I didn't see Pulp Fiction in theaters. Like, that one I had to, like, wait for home video. Yeah, well, what were you, like, nine when it came out? Like, 94, I would have been nine, yeah. Yeah. So I think I saw the movie when I was, like, 10 or 11. Oh, Jesus. But yeah, it takes a dark turn. Something I noticed this time around is that when Ving Rhames is doing the whole speech about like, we're we're going to get medieval on his ass, da 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 Bruce Willis is staring at him and Bruce Willis's view of Ving Rhames at that point is just the back of Ving Rhames' head. Mm-hmm. And that's how we're introduced to Ving Rhames. Oh, yeah. It's like from the back with the band-aid. We and, don't get a full view of Ving Rhames until really the car accident scene when he's crossing the street. Like, we get a little glimpse of him after the fight, like a little... We get a faraway shot in Act 1 when um, Butch is, like, leaving with the whole vinegar into wine speech. Yeah. But I don't know... Yeah, I don't know if we get a close-up of him there. Yeah, like, we don't get, like, a look at his face proper until the car accident scene. Yeah. But it's just... I just thought it was cool that Butch's view of Marsalis at that point was our view when we were first introduced Mm, to him. Interesting. This brings us into the third vignette. I just want to say, before we get into it, A, this is, like, just one of my favorite scenes, like, start to finish in any movie ever, is the wolf scene. I know that we might not be deeply qualified, woke as we are... (laughs) Uh, this does have the the problematic Quentin Tarantino appearance in it. Watching this now, they drop the n bomb a lot in this movie. Yeah, and the ones that the people re- that the people <laughs> that humanity seems to have a problem with is Quentin Tarantino. Eric mm-hmm. Stoltz says it at the beginning or near the beginning of Vignette Two when he's selling Vincent the heroin. He's like, "Sure, what am I up?" But I think part of the reason why people latch onto this one is hating it so much is because Quentin Tarantino is a terrible actor. <laughs> yes. Like, he says it a lot, which is problematic, but then he's so bad at delivering it. Like, he I'm, wields it in a way that is, like, demeaning. I'm a firm believer that meaning is in people, not in words. Mm-hmm. And it sounds so hateful coming from Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, especially because it's directed to Samuel L. Jackson, you know? Yeah. It just, like, <sighs> I feel like if there was a different actor, one with more elan, mm-hmm. it could have been sold in some way. But Quentin Tarantino's use of it, I'm like, oh, God, it sounds so hateful and coming forced. from And forced. At that point, it feels like for shock value a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it... And, I mean, obviously it didn't sour their relationship because they've done, what, like four other movies together now? Oh, yeah, now? And, so... and Samuel L. Jackson will defend his his use of it, too, like, publicly. But, it, yeah, it still feels icky. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really And it's not, like, forced. the good kind of icky. When we're on Deadbeat uh, and we're talking about The Shining, yeah. and it's used in that bathroom scene, I was like, but, you know... You That's illustrating you, some horror. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you, you, you're suddenly getting getting the idea that this is like a villain. Like, this is an evil spirit. Like, this is someone here to do harm. Like, yeah. he's not saying do harm, but like using that word suddenly paints him with an evil color. And like here, it's not doing that. 
Like, he's supposed to be an yeah. ally. So it's like, oh, what am I supposed to feel about this guy? And it might also, like, this, like, might be on the same page is that I have a lot of problems with later when they get dressed after, in his clothes. And he said, what do they look like? And he goes, dorks. <laughs> they look like a couple of dorks. Yeah. And for some reason, that word falls so flat for me. Maybe it is just the the fact that Quentin Tarantino is a shitty actor. Yeah, like he, really he just is. can't deliver the line. No. So I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not the words that he's written on the page, but maybe it's just the fact that he cast himself. I, not, I like that's firmly what I believe. It's an already problematic scene that his presence makes more problematic. Yeah. And could have been at least alleviated, maybe not all the way, but at least slightly, had they gotten an actor with more character or gravitas, say a Harvey Keitel of sorts. <laughs> Harvey Keitel's part as the wolf, I, I think what makes this scene so great for me is that this scene, this scene, or this part was clearly written for his specific acting style. Mm-hmm. He leans into it, like Harvey Keitel... As the wolf, I don't think performances get really any better than how he did it here. Yeah. And we just talked about this with Tootsie, where it's like sometimes it's good for a leading man to just step aside and do a great supporting role. Yeah. And this is a, a prime example of it. And he comes in, and it's he's not a big, flashy actor in this. Like, he's not doing a big performance. It's very muted. It's very understated. He's calm. I mean, he's like the level-headed one of the group. And he just comes in, and he's such a fucking scene stealer. I don't want to throw a bunch of cold water on uh, some of the logistics here, but Uh I have two questions. Sure. A, just before they end up, you know, killing dude and having to go to this house. Phil Lamar. Thank you. They're, you know, those dudes are eating uh, burgers from Big Kahuna Burger. At 7.22 in the morning. It's a question I always have had. Are they... Is Big Kahuna serving burgers at 7.22 in the morning? Or are they leftover burgers from the night before? That's my question. And then, so, you know, hand in hand with that, is Harvey Keitel as the wolf is at a party, like a fucking tuxedo party at (laughs) 8 o'clock in the morning. So I... could have, like, gone over from the night before. I felt that it it looked like some sort of uh, a communion. At 8 in the morning? I feel that that's just the way that Harvey Keitel dresses. Okay. Like I, f- I But there are other people in that hotel room all dressed up. Was it a hotel? I thought it was someone's home. Mm, looked like a hotel to me, but it could oh. have been. Maybe. I indeterminate world building. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean like if it was a hotel, like that lends credence to the idea that like these people have just been going all night long and da da da. da. Wasn't there kids at the party? Mm. There. I thought there was like small children. I didn't see that, but it's possible. Yeah, that's maybe the, those kids have been going on that long too. I mean, that's why I thought it was like a, a communion or something like that. Sure, like, they were either like gearing up for some sort of ceremony, or it had just gotten over with. But then that means it's on Sunday, and why would Big Kahuna Burger be open that early on a Sunday? <laughs> well, I mean, a what burger place is open at seven a.m. on a, any day? <laughs> Yeah. No, I definitely thought about that because when Samuel Jackson takes a bite out of it, like, they do a close-up of his face. This is like, a good burger. <laughs> this is a tasty burger. And that burger looked pretty fresh. That didn't like I've had like leftover dicks before. Um, phrasing. <laughs> and they're not that good the next day. Yeah, and there must be like 
ice in their drink. In the Sprite or whatever, his yeah. tasty beverage. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I don't know. It's a small... I mean, the apartment scene I really like because Samuel Jackson comes in and there's just suddenly this huge power imbalance in that apartment. Like, <sighs> he just commands the the to and fro. So this is all, another first with this movie was like, I think this is the first movie I ever seen that has a non-linear timeline. Yeah. And I remember being so confused when we jump back to this timeline in act three uh, and being like, I thought John Travolta was dead. Oh yeah. Cause like I was so trained at that point to think linearly, but I think what makes it work is that you're banking on that emotional response from Samuel Jackson's speech yeah. to just like lock you back into that. Yeah. And you know, th- it's, it's like a classic scene of cinema at this point. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. It gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Like, it's amazing. And so I think that he's banking on the emotional response from that to bring you back into that time period there. Yeah. It's an amazing scene, which, fuck. So we've talked about this before. Why the hell was he nominated for supporting actor in this movie? Well, John Travolta got nominated for lead They actor. are both leads. Yeah. No. Especially uh, when you consider the fact that coming up later in the end, at the end of the movie, when he's talking to Tim Roth, guess who's in the bathroom the whole time? John Travolta. Guess who's doing the acting mm. in that t- period? Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, I, we'll, we'll get to this in, in a minute when we talk about the climax of the movie, I guess. But just to to go back to the wolf scene. Just sorry. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I got jumped ahead. No worries. I still say fairly frequently like when people are patting each other on the back like over a job well done i still say well let's not start sucking each other's dicks quite yet that's a reference on this podcast (laughs) another thing this movie did for the as like a first for me was that it made violence funny Mm, mm -hmm. like i can't ever remember laughing at extreme violence like somebody's head exploding in a car until this movie Mm -hmm. i know that there are movies before i had just never seen one it was a new thing for me the idea that violence could make me laugh like that and i remember laughing and it's it's so crazy that he was able to sort of subvert the whole idea that violence should be serious in this movie Mm, 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 you know what mm, i mean yeah i mean i think in terms of a mainstream movie having violence be that type of funny it might have been a first. Yeah. Uh, at least to that extent. Because the reaction to it is like, oh, shit, what an inconvenience. Yeah. And then they have to deal with the aftermath. And yeah. that's funny, too. Yeah. Like, well, I think it was, to bring it back to Tootsie, Elaine May, who said that uh, drama is in action and comedy is in detail. Mm. Uh, and she's talking about, like, oh, if it's a drama and someone's going to commit suicide, they just take a gun and they kill themselves. Yeah. But like if it's comedy, it's like they take a gun, but then they realize that it doesn't have any bullets, and so they have to look around for bullets, and these bullets aren't the right size, so then they have to like go to the gun store and buy bullets uh-huh. first. Like 
that's the, like the difference there is like the little details that like lead up to the action yeah, like cleaning brain matter <laughs> yeah i love that scene when he's like well i'm a mushroom cloud laying motherfucker motherfucker every time my fingers touch brain i'm super fly tnt i'm the guns of the navarone in fact what the fuck am i doing in the back you the motherfucker should be on brain detail we fucking switching i'm washing the windows and you picking up this nigga's skull part's so funny <laughs> it's also just sort of a nice breath of fresh air because it seems lighter than the previous vignettes that we've had yeah like it it seems like the stakes are lower the wife might not be happy like it might end in divorce but it's like the previous ones like people are getting like raped and killed yeah so it just seems altogether a little lighter it's a little breath of fresh air it's a little shorter than the previous two vignettes mm-hmm. and there's just a little brevity to it yeah and then uh, they get away, basically, and Julia Sweeney yeah. offers to crush the car, and <laughs> who is, I'm going to be honest, a little a little wooden in this. It's kind of, I was kind of bummed by her performance this time around. Were you expecting greater things? A little bit, yeah. Maybe. It's what the- has she been greater in, by the way? <laughs> not, not from her, but just like, it kind of took me out of the movie a little bit. It's oh. like, it feels unnatural mm, 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 mm. in a movie where so much of the dialogue feels natural suddenly yeah. it felt like forced uh no offense julia you just you fucked it up <laughs> <laughs> so we've got the final scene yeah which is uh amazing i don't know I don't, and i don't know why it works exactly well not much happens for me, this is what sells it for having a nonlinear storyline because this is a culmination of the themes that we deal with in all the vignettes, like the themes of redemption and salvation. Each storyline is someone being saved or saving someone or, you know, uh, uh, rescuing in one way or another. Okay. You know, we have Vincent and Mia in the the first full vignette. Sure, sure, sure. And he's saving Mia after that overdose. I mean, there's a lot leading up to that, of course, mm-hmm. but you know, that's overall what happens. And then even when she tells him the joke at the end, it's sort of like this showing that like we're good. Like Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, we are on the same level now. Like I'm no longer putting you at arm's length or something. The, I mean, the second one probably has the biggest themes of redemption in it because Butch and Marcellus Wallace are enemies. And at some point, you know, Butch has to save his enemy sure. from this fate. And that's what he chooses to do. And in does so, like, redeems himself in the eyes of his enemy and is no longer, you know, the, the object of, you know, derision by him yeah in you know the third one the wolf saves jules and vincent uh from this predicament that they've got themselves in so you see that through through the three preceding vignettes and then samuel jackson is ostensibly saving these two petty thieves from their own lives like what they've the lifestyle that they've chosen he's trying to be the shepherd And, I mean, that's what he does. Like, you get the impression, like, we don't know what they're going to do after they leave the restaurant. But the idea is that they're reformed at that point. That, like, you know, Tim Roth's character in particular has been touched by what's happened here. Mm -hmm. And that he, at the very least, is changed by it. This, like, near-death experience with someone. 
So, I mean, yeah, Samuel Jackson is literally speaking the climax through this fictional biblical verse and his interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. So we see all the themes of this movie being filtered through his interpretation of a, of a Bible verse. And it's nice because going off of what you said, there's a real ambiguity as to why these people are doing their salvation. Mm-hmm. So like Vincent, you could say that he's saving Mia because he loves her or because he's trying to save his own ass. Yeah. You could say that Butch is saving Marcellus for those same reasons. Mm-hmm. He's, he's either doing it. I mean, his is a little more different. It's like his is like, I mean, Butch it's doesn't the right know thing. that he's going to be off the hook if he does this. He's just doing it because he feels that he can't do the other right but if he he's doing it because it's like either the right thing to do or because like he maybe thinks that like by saving him he might not get pursued past Mm -hmm. this point so it's like that's kind of ambiguous and then also with i mean the wolf is just doing it why is the wolf doing it is he doing it for money or is he doing it because no he's doing it for money he's doing it for money (laughs) but i mean still um he's still actively saving two people yeah i mean that's you know maybe even three and that's his job so he sort of sees the wolf as the shepherd Mm, flip uh (laughs) (laughs) that's what this movie's great at it's good at like flipping expectations in that way Mm -hmm. where you wouldn't think of say the wolf being the shepherd Mm -hmm. but in this case it does kind of work that way yeah and this is also one of those movies that like i almost feel like quentin tarantino's not smart enough to (laughs) design a movie like that maybe not like maybe he is maybe he is that bright but i don't know i I watch interviews with him and like it's not that quentin is dumb by any standards but it's just having a movie that is all about theme that that circles around themes that i don't see in his wheelhouse a lot outside Mm. of that like you know we we definitely have themes of revenge and things like that in other movies or but like having to be about like salvation just doesn't seem traditionally in his wheelhouse so i don't know maybe he did design it that way but a lot of it just feels like he just had these stories in him and it's sort of a the the author is dead scenario where like he wrote what was inside him and they just happened to be interlaced thematically yeah well like i said before who cares kind of like (laughs) when the plot is this twisty and the dialogue is this good there's just so many good things about it and it's such a touchstone for our generation you know how the graduate Mm -hmm. was maybe a touchstone for baby boomers this is the movie that people come back to of our age you know like this is what we reference yeah and so regardless of what you think its cultural value is like it means something on a bigger scale to our generation. I'm out. I know. I have nothing else to say. I barely looked at my notes while, while talking about this. I don't think I did it at all. So there, there, we talked about some movies you might have seen. <laughs> fucking happy. <sighs> I'm actually a little happy. No, I'm like totally alienating the people we might have actually <laughs> brought in from doing these movies. I feel like talking about movies that people have seen, I've I, like I've uh, blown my wad a little bit. Can <laughs> <laughs> uh, have a cigarette and go to bed? Yeah, I kind of want to go back to talking about movies that people haven't seen. <laughs> 
next season, after our break, each of the movies that I'm going to pick is going to be one out of my favorite franchises. Oh, okay. I'm giving myself some rules. Can't be the first movie in a franchise. Okay. And that's probably the only rule. <laughs> so you're giving yourself some rule. <laughs> and it's got to be like a movie that's got like more than, you know, two movies in it. Okay. Like, yeah. I'm not going to pick like Godfather 2 or something. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that has three movies in it. Right. But, you know, an extensive franchise. Okay. 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 Uh, you know, one that's been run into the ground. <laughs> sure. Sure. And so I'm going to start us out. Superman Returns. Hmm. My favorite of the whole Superman body of work. This is the movie that bombed like 10 years ago. Wait, did Brian Singer do this Yeah. One? This is a Brian Singer one. Yeah. Just since we've done Tootsie and um, Harvey Weinstein released Pulp Fiction, put you know the Weinstein Company on the map. Now we're doing a Brian Singer movie? Well, I'm nervous. <laughs> Well, Brian... Starring Kevin Spacey, maybe? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Kevin Spacey is Lex Luthor. <laughs> oh, is it really? Yeah. No. No. Did you not know that? I didn't. This is going to be P-R-O-B-L-M-A-T-I-C. <laughs> but yes, it's my favorite Superman movie. Excellent. Problematic in... as it may be now. And that's going to be in three weeks. In two weeks, we're doing a clip show because we're taking a week off. Yeah, one week off, clip show. With so much hot quality content that we produce in this podcast, some of it has to hit the cutting room floor. We were thinking it'd be fun to do a little uh, a little clip show for you uh, in two weeks that just sort of uh, highlights those things that got cut away. So stuff that, that didn't fit the episode or were cut for time, but was still good, good stuff. We're going to, you know, wrap up in a bow and give it to you. Yeah. Before we, we call it a night, let's plug our junk again. Let's do it. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, especially the rate and review. If you didn't already at the beginning of the episode, you can do it now. Yeah, please do it now. You can also reach us on Twitter at xratedmovies, also by Gmail. Our address there is x.rated.movies at gmail.com. Check out our new site, xratedmovies.com. Yeah, and, you know, tell your friends and family and coworkers and Lyft drivers about our podcast. Let them know. And if you want to find out what's happening next, follow us on Facebook, at Rated X Movies. Thanks so much for listening to our 50 blatherings on. Um, in a couple weeks, we've got Superman Returns. Yes. And uh, just before that, we've got a X-rated clip show of our trimmings, our offcuts. <laughs> For the record, we talked for 170 minutes today. <laughs> Longest recording yet. Maybe some of that will make the clip show. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> yeah. End of podcast. Yeah.